The Way Out Podcast, episode 232. I've been in and out of recovery for about 10. I joke around. I say, yeah, I got like seven years sober, just not in a row. When you come back from a relapse, your day one looks different than someone's day one who's completely new to this. You already got like, you know, a basic understanding of what you got to do and what you did wrong. And whereas when you're new, you really don't know what's going on. I grew up on the South Shore of Staten Island. It's a heavy Italian enclave. I'm half Irish, so that was kind of like used against me a little bit (laughs) amongst my friends. I came from a a good family. A lot of people, um, they get confused. They they seem to think that uh, addiction starts from, you know, bad upbringing. I had a beautiful childhood. We used to go to this beach club every uh, summer. And it's like, you know, when I think of that, I think of like, it was basically picturesque. The reason why people relapse is because they don't realize that sobriety is a commitment. It takes years to build your life back up. Yeah. And I'm like, huh? Because we all want that instant gratification. We get frustrated that life doesn't turn around at the drop of a hat, you know? And then I heard someone say something very similar Basically, like he said, that it takes years to get your life back. And I I heard it like twice in a six month span. And that was like a game changer for me because part of me would get frustrated. Like, all right, I got a year, but like my life doesn't look that much better than when I was drinking. And from hearing them say that, I was like, all right, this I got to start thinking with a more of a long game mentality. We, we, We say we let God do the driving. But sometimes it feels like God's like a sketchy Uber driver that's taking some back roads. <laughs> like, you know, there's a faster way, right? When I was a kid, you know, it started with just like, you know, smoking weed and drinking in the woods. But when it came to the hard stuff, um, the first time I tried opiates was uh, 9-11. Once college came, that's when everything kind of like really came together in a negative way. Um, I was introduced to the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which kind of inspired me into getting into writing. But yeah, so, you know, first I watch the movie, then I read the book, then I read his other books, and I realize like, all right, this guy just gets high and writes books. I mean, I, I could do that. The seed was planted for uh, wanting to become a writer. And also the seed was planted for, for much more drug use because when I was a kid, like I thought like, you know, if you do a lot, like you might end up dead. But then you see this guy doing all this crazy shit, And you're like, all right, maybe the human body could handle a lot more than I expected. So the gloves come off in college and the, you know, academics take a backseat. I don't really like go to class. And if I do, I'm strung out. And then eventually my my grades slip enough. So I'm just working in restaurants like I always have. And it starts to get progressively worse. So it got to the point where I'm unemployed. I got a huge habit. Eventually I moved to Los Angeles get into a bit of a Sid and Nancy type of toxic relationship. I get arrested out there. That lands me in my first rehab. And then it was uh, an in and out struggle with recovery for a long time. At first I lived in Florida. I I could never get more than like 90 days down there. It'd be rehab, halfway house, relapse, rehab, halfway house, relapse, on and on and on. I got my first real taste of sobriety when I came back home. This is more my cup of tea. These are my kind of people. We got that commonality of, you know, the same upbringing and and whatever. And I I was able to put together a little bit more than a year once I came home. But yeah, so I got like a year and a half. Um, 
start dating this girl, another toxic relationship, sit and Nancy type deal. And I'm back to the in and out 90 days, back out 90 days, back out. You know, I had this like uh, desire to just be like normal, like them. And I tried just drinking. Like I felt so good. I, I kind of had like that Bill Wilson, like I had arrived moment just from the yeah. way I was behaving socially with people that I was willing to overlook like hitting my best friend's grandmother's truck. It was like, all right, new rule. Just don't text when you're drinking and driving. Not don't drink and drive, just don't text and drink and drive. Just to give you an idea of like my insanity. You know, that that was that was the last straw. At that point, I was like, okay, you you, you can't drink safely because you, you, you're flirting with some guy's girlfriend in front of him. Like you're like a bull in a china shop. Like something has to change you. Right. And I really approached sobriety completely different than I ever had before. I really, one, one of the biggest game changers for me this time around was I always glossed over meditation. Like I tried it like a couple of times, but now it's, I mean, unless life is really getting in the way, I always do at least 10 minutes in the morning. And I, I really, I, I always scoffed at like what the benefits might be, but I was really blown away at just how much clearer I think and how much calmer I am in situations. Mm. I mean, I'm still a psycho, but a, a, <laughs> a, a much be, a much more disciplined psycho. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, our exceptional co-host Jason brings us an outstanding interview with person in long-term recovery and author of the new addiction memoir, Savage, 
A Journey Through the Opioid Epidemic, Stephen J. Sackey. If you're like us, you'll be instantly smitten with Stephen's quick wit and always honest and often dark and self-deprecating humor that is artfully interwoven into a spellbinding recounting of his often rocky road to recovery. He shares honestly about the struggles he had along the way and what it was like writing his new memoir, Savage. Without question, Stephen's story illuminates two irrefutably universal truths about addiction and recovery. First, our rock bottom is when we stop digging. And often, that is an emotional and spiritual bottom, not a monetary or material one. Second, and equally as instructive, is that recovery and building a new life is a process that takes time, often years or even decades. If we allow ourselves to be patient and bite it off in one day at a time chunks, we will get better and in turn, life will follow suit. After all the lessons Stevens learned, there's lots of instructive wisdom in this episode, so listen up. Hey everybody, welcome to the Way Out Podcast. I'm your co-host Jason, and I got with us today Stephen Sackey. He's the author of a memoir called Savage, A Journey Through the Opioid Epidemic. Uh, What's up, Stephen? How are you? I'm awesome, man. How are you? Pretty good. Dude, I'm, I'm a migraine, but you know, I'll get through it. Oh no, man. I don't, I'm so glad I don't get those things. So starting off, let's just find out how long you've been clean for. Uh, two and a half years. Um, I've been in and out of recovery for about 10. I joke around. I say, yeah, I got like seven years sober, just not in a row. Oh yeah. Well, dude, honestly, though, I think there's some validity to that because, you know, when people fuck up and they go back out and then they come back, thank God, you know, thank God they make it back through the door Um, because a lot don't. But when they do, you know, they're feeling all this shame. And I'm like, look, man, you didn't lose an ounce of the recovery that you had. Like you learned all that stuff. You you still know it. You know, it's still in you. You know, if anything, you got a leg up from a lot of these fucking like real newcomer newcomers that just walked in and they've never been to a meeting or learned any of this shit before. So, oh, absolutely. When 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 you come back from a relapse, your day one looks different than someone's day one who's completely new to this. You already got like, you know, a basic understanding of what you got to do and what you did wrong. And whereas when you're new, you really don't know what's going on. Exactly. So what's your clean date, man? November 10, 2019. Did I got that right? Yeah. Nice. Wait, no, 2018. 2018. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say, I think that's like a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's two It's two, two years and change. Right on, bro. That's no, that's no small feat. Um, how, what, what was your modality of recovery? What was your method that you used? Lots of pathways out there. Oh, I use AA. AA. Yeah. The the tried and true, right? The the pioneers of it all. Um so we like to kind of get a kind of idea about you know family of origin type stuff right off the top. Uh so you want to tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up for you? Well, I grew up on the south shore of Staten Island. It's uh heavy Italian enclave. 
I'm half Irish. So that was kind of like used against me a little bit <laughs> amongst my friends. But um, yeah, it's a, it, it's it's a, it's a very suburban, but it's within the city limits. So you kind of get like the best of both worlds. Uh, you get a city attitude, but you're kind of like, like I said, in, in the suburbs, really, because the South Shore is pretty nice. So I came from a good family. A lot of people, um, they get confused. They, they seem to think that uh, addiction starts from, you know, bad upbringing. I had a beautiful childhood. In right. fact, just the other day, someone messaged me that they read the book. And coincidentally, we knew each other in childhood. She just didn't realize it was me. Because we used to go to this beach club every uh, summer. And it's like, you know, when I think of that, I think of like it was basically picturesque. But, um, you know, some people are just born with this thing. There's not some there's not some traumatic experience that happens. They just kind of have the taste for it. Right. And I think that's why we love to ask about it, because, you know, it is instructive in that way where it can show that. You know, I could have had all the love and all and all the things that I needed and all my needs met and and had good role models and still went down this path. You know what I mean? Yeah. Easily. In fact, my first treatment center, they were like, um, well, they had this thing where they're like, well, we're really going to get down to the, the core of like what caused you to do this. And then, like, I'm starting to think, like, like, oh, yeah, maybe like my childhood was messed up. And like, like, yeah, you know what? My mom was mean. And then I realized, like. No, she wasn't. She was a good mom. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I think then, too, that that brings up the subject of comparison, right? Because I think so many people, uh, you know, if they hear somebody and they didn't have a fucked up childhood or whatever, and they hear somebody sharing about how they did, and that's why it led them down this path. Well, then they automatically are like, I'm not like these people. I don't belong here. Uh you know, they, they uh, alienate themselves from the group. You know, they disqualify themselves from recovery because their story is different than the other guy. And it's like, no, dude, you know, fuck this shit. It, addiction doesn't have any, you know, it doesn't discriminate, man. You know what I mean? It, it touches people in every aspect, every type of life, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, but- there's definitely like a lot of, um, things that out there that uh, like, you know, ideas on how to tackle this thing that are probably wrong and might be a little toxic in some cases, but you know, I feel like we all do the best we can. Right. Exactly. And different strokes for different folks, dude. I mean, I'm always like, Hey, if it works for you, good on you, man. You know, (laughs) I might think that it sounds weird, you know, what your higher power is or what, how, you know, what work you did to get clean, but you know, what I think don't matter. What matters is how you feel about it and if it works for you. So right on, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I just want to see you win, dude. That's what I always try to remind myself, you know, be, be tolerant of everybody. And and I try to embrace all pathways, man, and all belief systems as far as, you know, because I can learn something from everyone. And if I'm thinking that, anything's whack enough to the point where I'm not going to, you know, my ears are going to shut off right away. And then I'm not going to listen to, I'm going to miss the message, dude. I'm going to miss what that person had to teach me because I'm too busy in my judgments, you know? 
Yeah. One, one, one really like good experience I had with that was I was in rehab in Spokane, Washington. And the speaker was this elderly woman. Uh, she was a lesbian, you know, nothing against lesbians, but uh, like in my mind, I'm like, how am I going to relate to this woman at all? She's old. She's a lesbian. She's from the other side of the country. Right. This speaker is going to suck is what I was thinking. <laughs> Her message resonated so much that even now, like five, six years later, I still think about her. Like I, I, I approached her after the meeting. I was like, that was fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She kept saying this thing like uh, she'd get into, you know, all these blunders and she would say, you know, I strap up my bootstraps. And, <laughs> you know, in New York, we don't really have boots with straps on them. So but but like I understood what she was trying to say. Yeah. And I identified so much. Well, I think the bootstraps thing is like just a figure of speech. I don't think any really anybody wears boots with straps on them, bro. <laughs> oh no, no, they 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 were they were wearing some weird stuff over there. <laughs> okay, but yeah, I mean, I I've heard that saying, and yeah, you talk you talk about that in your book too. That that book, bro. I swear to God, I was starting to think that it was literally just going to be war stories. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> I was oh. like. He's never going to get his shit together. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I spoke to my editor about it, I was like, yeah, I don't know if it's finished because, you know, I kind of want to offer a little bit more hope, but it's just my mind is just not there yet. Like, I know it's I know it's coming. I know, like, I know I'm going in the right direction, but like, I'm not really like feeling like I'm rocketed through the fourth dimension, so to speak. Right. And she's like, well, don't worry about that, because this isn't a recovery memoir. This is an addiction memoir. And once I finished it, I realized, you know what? This is perfect because recovery is not always rainbows and blowjobs. And at the end of the day, it shows like once we get to the part where I get sober, I explain my struggles. I explain why I'm struggling. And a story has to have struggle. Yeah. And at the end of it, you see that even in the face of all this fear and insecurity and, you know, what have you, I decide I'm not going to quit. Right. Dude, I loved it. I I loved it. That that whole last chapter, you know, re, reborn. Um, That's what, the second to last chapter. Oh, well, whatever. I, I felt like the last two, those last two chapters, then were one chapter. And I must have been so into it that I blew past the beginning of the second, you know, where it said like the last chapter name, I swear to God. Cause I was just like, yeah, like you're talking about, like you, you know, you were describing your struggles in such detail and, and how you rationalize or, or you know, like how you kind of processed would be a better word, how you process through those things and push forward. Um, just so instructive to the fact that like, this is work, dude. And it's tough. And I always, I always have to remind sponsees and stuff, you know, I'm like, if fucking life is messy right now, or if it hurts, or if it's tough, it's probably means you're doing something right. Because if you think that getting clean is going to be easy, you are tripping. Like a guy at one of my treatments that I went to in New Beginnings in Waverly, Minnesota, this dude's name was Mark and he was he, he facilitated a couple NA meetings in in-house ones. And he said in this one meeting, dude, he's, I'll never forget it. It's always like in big, bold letters in my head. He said, recovery ain't for no pussies, <laughs> you know? Uh, and the fact that you, uh, 
I, just, I appreciated your honesty, man. And in the way that you wrote about it um, and the way you wrote about everything, I mean, shit, you had a, so many attempts at getting clean in the book. I kept thinking that, okay, here's where it's going to go into, but I think maybe it is perfect. You know, like you said, that's a good way to put it. Like it's an addiction memoir and like this, this leaves open, you know, like you could just write a whole different book about, you know, the hope or whatever, you know, you were saying, you know, so, but you gave hope in it. You did. And, and I think the biggest thing is that you kept coming back, right? Like every time you get embarrassed or fuck up, you'd be like, I'm going back to that sober fellowship. <laughs> you know, you said that yeah. so many times in that fucking book. You know, one thing that I was angry uh, with myself about that I forgot to put in there. And if this was the best piece of advice and I got it coincidentally from two different people that know each other, but I know that they didn't like coordinate this at all. In fact, the first one was someone who he had like two years sober and now he kind of drinks like a gentleman. And but, you know, he's completely turned his life around. He's not like out there like a mess. Right. Um, and he says, "Do you, uh, we were like texting each other and he's just like, you want to know why people stay sober? And like the part of the part of me that is like a, an AA purist is like rolling my eyes at first. I'm like, I'm like, oh, well, all right, what's he going to say? Cause you know, like now he drinks wine and he admires, like, he's like, Oh, there's look, look at the legs on this. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about legs. If I'm drinking wine, I'm drinking wine. You know, I'm not concerned with the legs, but uh, <laughs> he said, the reason why people relapse is because they don't realize that sobriety is a commitment. It takes years to build your life back up. Yeah. And I was like, huh? Because we all want that instant gratification. We get frustrated that life doesn't turn around at the drop of a hat, you know? And then I heard someone say something very similar, basically, like he said, that it takes years to get your life back. And I, I heard it like twice in a six month span. And that was like a game changer for me because yeah. part of me would get frustrated, like, all right, I got a year, but like my life doesn't look that much better than when I was drinking. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and from hearing them say that, I was like, all right, this I got to start thinking with a more of a long game mentality. Totally. Dude, and there was a part uh, in the book where you had a conversation with somebody and you were uh, you were bitching about your circumstances and they said um, something similar to that effect, you know, that they were like, how many years did you use? And you said 20 years, you know, and then they were like, and you think you're going to get you know, you're going to be all better in a year. It was when you were about a year clean. I think it was towards the end of the book. Yeah. But totally, it's like, no shit, you know? And then speaking to like, it's God's time, not mine. You know, it's like, I can, I can feel entitled or like I've worked hard enough. Like I should have, I should be in a you know better place, you know, stop shooting on yourself because you know, it's not in our time, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's like, yeah, one, one of the things I said was, uh, it's hard. We think God's like, uh, we, we, we say we let God do the driving, but sometimes it feels like God's like a sketchy Uber driver. That's taking some back roads. <laughs> like, you know, there's a faster way, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Another, that's another thing. You had so many awesome little fucking one-liners in there. Like, 
I I laughed out loud. I don't know how many times reading it for real, dude. It was funny. You're a funny guy, my friend. Yeah, I try. So talk to us about this a uh, little bit uh, as far as like when, you know, how, how did you end up starting to get, you know, high and like, how, how did it all start? Well, uh, when I was a kid, you know, it started with just like, you know, smoking weed and drinking in the woods. But when it came to the hard stuff, um, the first time I tried opiates was uh, 9-11 because before that I went to a strict Catholic high school at first, eventually got kicked out. But the dean of discipline, he, he, if, if you stepped out of line, he, he didn't hesitate to just punch you right in your stomach to the point where it hurt so much that like you go to the bathroom and throw up. So for you know, real, the dean of the school would punch you in the stomach. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. And, and, Reminds and me of that movie Dirty Work when they <laughs> their fucking <laughs> landlord's like, if you laid on the rent, yeah, I'll punch you in the stomach. <laughs> punch you in the stomach. <laughs> you remember that shit? Yeah. Oh, uh, I can't believe you know about Dirty Work. That's such a slept-on gem of a movie. It is. It's great. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I, listen, the, 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 the punch in the stomach, as it turns out, is, is the least of your worries because uh, the, it turns out the dean of the academic dean, who was a priest, turned out to be doing the, that, you know, he's accused of some something. All right. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But um, yeah, so I was worried about um, getting punched in the stomach. It's not that I didn't want to try those pills. I just didn't know what it would do to me. And I didn't want to like walk around the halls all fucked up and catch a beating. But on 9-11, this is before f- smartphones. Like we had cell phones, but the service was bad. We didn't really have we, we were cut off from the outside world. We didn't know what was going on. They start calling like 20 names on the loudspeaker like so and so, so and so. Your parents are here to come get you. And then the teacher would try and continue the lesson. And then another 20 names. And it just got to the point where he gave up on the lesson. And I turned to the guy because the guy behind me always offered it. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. We're not learning nothing. Give me a couple of those. <laughs> and then just as I, I take them, my name comes up and then we found out what was going on. That's crazy. Yeah. That would have been weird. Uh, you know what? Uh, where I was at when 9-11 happened? <laughs> I was upstairs in my room, living in my mom's friend's house, this old farmhouse, drafty, rundown house. And I was up there shooting up and I was so strung out. And then all of a sudden, Keith, the guy that I lived with, he was like, Jason, come downstairs. You got to see this. And I come downstairs and they're showing the planes hitting the towers on the news. And we smoked a ball and, you know, cause he was just a pothead and he would have some old Milwaukee's, you know, and that was all he did. And he, we talked a little bit and then I just remember it was the most surreal weirdest. And I'm sure the, a lot of that strangeness of the moment was drug induced too, but just sitting there like watching them, you know, playing this shit on replay over and over. And I, I was pretty numb to it, man, at the time. I mean, my brain understood how heavy it was, but I couldn't even like really react to it. It was, I was just too fucked up. Yeah, me too. I mean, and plus 
thank God. Uh, all my uh, relatives, anybody that worked in Manhattan, they were all safe. So thank God. Yeah. So uh, uh, kind of like what you said, like like my brain understood the magnitude of it. But, you know, I was in a different headspace. And plus, I was young. I was just a sophomore in high school. So, you know, that that, that was like the first like major aside from maybe Columbine. That was like the first like major horrible atrocity that I lived through. Right. Yeah, I think I was 21. Yeah, I was 21. Shit. That was a long time ago, man. But 20 years. So you try these pills at school. (laughs) Were you already high before they called your name or what? Yeah, they called my name like 10 minutes later. By the time I got into the car, with my mother and uh, our next door neighbor, that's when I started feeling it. Oh man, <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, so it's like tragedies happening, but it's like in my mind, it's like I'm feeling good right now, and I just got out of school. Okay, man, that's insane. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Such a different perspective. Everybody's probably like, man, devastated and. You're just like, this is a pretty good day. <laughs> yeah, plus we got the day off from school the next day. So me and my friends, we went out and we, we, we partied. Right. It's insane, oh. man. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of open the floor to you now. And you can just, uh, you know, tell us your story, man. Like, um, we, we want to hear about it and. I, I'm looking forward to hearing the way it sounds coming out of your mouth because I love your accent. So I'm gonna I'm gonna open it up to you, brother. Oh, from 9/11, um, it didn't really go. I didn't really go completely down the rabbit hole right away. Mostly just stuck to um, you know, just smoking and drinking. But once college came, that's when everything kind of like really came together in a negative way. Um. I was introduced to the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which kind of inspired me into getting into writing because you've seen the movie, right? Oh, dude, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, And I've got a many, many a story that I could tell you about strange, weird, drug induced experiences watching that movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so, uh, you know, first I watch the movie, then I read the book, then I read his other books and I realize, like, all right, this guy just gets high and writes books. I mean, I I could do that. Right. I, I couldn't write when I was getting high, just uh, it'd be all sloppy. But but still, like a seed was planted for uh, wanting to become a writer. And also a seed was planted for for much more drug use, because when I was a kid, like I thought, like, you know, if you do a lot, like you might end up dead. But then you see this guy doing all this crazy shit. And you're like, all right, maybe the human body could handle a lot more than I expected. So the gloves come off in college and the. Uh, you know, academics take a backseat. I don't really like go to class. And if I do, I'm strung out. And then eventually my, my grades slip enough. So I'm just working in restaurants like I always have. And it starts to get progressively worse. In college, it was mostly like hallucinogenics and cocaine. And here and there, we would take like, uh, you know, perk 30s just to like, you know, go to sleep. But eventually that started to become the drug of choice. And it got to the point where I was rendered unemployable because my behavior would be so erratic that I'd get if they if they were dumb enough to hire me, they'd fire me in, in like a day or two. 
Right. So it got to the point where I'm unemployed. I got a huge habit. And one night I'm at uh, TGI Fridays because uh, Monday night football, everybody's there to watch football. I'm about to go into a drawer. My my dealer's sitting in the bar. I try to get one on the arm. He's like, nah. So I'm walking around. I see some girls I hadn't seen since high school. And they're, uh, what do you call it? They're, they're, they're paying the bill. And there's, there's like 100 people in the bar, but nobody's paying attention to this check. And I'm looking for like staff members. Nobody's around. Nobody sees this check but me. So I'm thinking like, all right, I'm not going into a drawer. So I'm just going to pocket this. I pocket it. I grab my dealer. Let's run to your car. He's like, I thought you were broke. I say things change. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I, I start <laughs> contemplating that in my head all night. And I'm like, there's something to this. And I realized that if I, because I always worked in a restaurant. So like, I know how to like maneuver around a restaurant. For sure. <laughs> what I, what I would do is I dress up in a shirt and tie and I, you know, like a maitre d' almost. And yes. I'd walk up to tables in restaurants. I, I would hang out by the bar and wait for somebody to pay in cash and also make sure that there's no servers around or staff members. And I'd walk up to the table like, how was everything tonight, folks? Good. Do, do you need any change? Oh, no, it's, it's all yours. It, it literally became all mine because I just walk out with it. Right. <laughs> and I, and I, I did that for it, it was my job. I did it for, you know, seven days a week for about six months. I ended up on the news twice. They yeah, you're the restaurant, restaurant bandit. <laughs> yeah. They never caught me either. I, I became more of a mystery to them than D.B. Cooper. Man, I checked with a cop buddy of mine because, uh, you know, I was a little worried about writing about that. But uh, he's like, yeah, now the statute of limitations is done. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to make some amends, but, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to pay it off in my lifetime, though. But uh, yeah, so eventually I moved to Los Angeles, get into a bit of a sit and anti type of toxic relationship. I get arrested out there. That lands me in my first rehab. And then it was uh, an in and out struggle with recovery for a long time. At first, I lived in Florida, which is kind of like the recovery capital of the world. And um, it's also the relapse capital of the world. It's funny how they go hand in hand. Right. But, like um, that's the first place the drugs show up in this country. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's a little there's a little bit of toxicity down there because there's a lot of treatment centers that aren't really reputable. They're just looking for a quick buck and they're yeah. kind of manipulating the system. They've regulated it a lot more. But back in like 2008, 2009, um, Obama passed some kind of legislation that really opened up the floodgates for them, for them to take advantage of the, the health insurance companies. Right. But um, yeah, I, I could never get more than like 90 days down there. It'd be rehab, halfway house, relapse, rehab, halfway house, relapse, right. on and on and on. Well, and that's what they want, you know? Well, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, they're counting on that. Hell yeah. Um, I, I was very fortunate, though, the, the owner of my halfway house was a decent man, and he genuine he genuinely wanted to see us succeed. I mean, at the end of the day, sure, it's a business, but this guy was 
especially compared to some of the other people that they had down there, this guy was great. I love him to death. He saved my life so many times because there's so many, there was times when I didn't have health insurance anymore and he scholarship me. And for anybody that he, he um, cared about, he would always do that for, but um, I didn't really get my, my first, I got my first real taste of sobriety when I came back home because a close friend of mine, he had like nine months and I'm like, all right, this is more my cup of tea. These are my kind of people. We got that commonality of, you know, the same upbringing and, and, and whatever. And I, I, I was able to put together a little bit more than a year once I came home. I found it easier to stay sober because there, there's always like this, uh, you know, they say people, places and things. That doesn't necessarily mean that you got to like move out of town because I find it easier to stay sober home than I do elsewhere. Right. I, I often find that I could get into more trouble when I go elsewhere. But um, yeah, because then it. nobody knows. Well, at least this is what my brain says. It says nobody will know. But I don't yeah. re- I forget that I'm going to know. And it's and I should know myself good enough to know that it's going to fucking eat at me, too. You know, or or, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know God then. But if I had, you know. I, I would think, oh yeah, God knows too. <laughs> you know, he's going to convict me too. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. But yeah, so I got like a year and a half. Um, I started dating this girl, another toxic relationship, sit in anti type deal. She was kind of like, all right, well, I'm not doing um, opiates, but uh, on the weekends I'll take some Molly and I'll drink. And I'm like, oh, I could do that. And from there it just snowballed. And I'm back to the in and out 90 days, back out 90 days, back out. I get a call from the sanitation department, um, which is I don't know what what a garbage man is where you're from. But in New York City, that's a great career. It's a six figure income. It's like, okay, now now I could get my taste of the American dream. I could afford with this kind of career. I could afford a house. I could afford a family like that's all I ever really wanted. So. Right. But it wasn't enough to keep me sober because I get clean right before it because they do drug test you. But uh, a friend of mine got called as well. And he's like, you know, they don't test for blues. I was like, well, that's all I needed to hear. Jeez. And they didn't test for it. But you, there's a probationary period. And I got arrested within that probationary period. And when you get arrested in New York City, if you work for another city agency, the first thing they do is they contact your job. So I get fired. I try going to um i try going back to florida because my little brother is down there and i put like six months together and that doesn't work out so i come back um just before the trump administration i get like 90 days and i'm working in jersey because um my only skill set at this point is working in restaurants waiting tables and by now i'm approaching age 30 so i have like this kind of like insecurity about the fact that I haven't done anything with my life. So I didn't want to uh, wait tables on Staten Island where I'm from because I didn't want people from like high school or whatever that have moved on with their lives and progressed in life to see me serving them their tables. My ego just wouldn't allow it. So I drove into Jersey like a like a 20 minute, half hour drive, you know, thinking I'm safe there. But plenty of people that I know ended up there, too. Um, And 
the, the addiction isn't as prevalent there in this area as I mean, there's there's addicts, but it's just not as prevalent as it is on Staten Island. This is kind of like at times it felt like ground zero for the opioid epidemic. But, um, you know, I was working with people that would party on the weekends, but, um, you know, they were normal. You know, they, they could show up to school or work on Monday, whereas me, I, I go completely off the rails. Right. So. You know, I had this like uh, desire to just be like normal like them. And I tried just drinking. And the, the first night I drank, the, the, this guy, he's my roommate. He's my best friend. Um, he's got 10 years sober. He's been sober through all this. I first met him in sobriety. Um, I'm drinking. I'm going to meet some some friend. I'm driving drunk. I clip some truck. So I get out of there. It's like four in the morning. And the friend that I was meeting, he's like, bro, I, I think you hit Rob's grandmother's truck. Right. Are you serious? He's like, yeah. And at first I thought he was messing with me. But then I realized my friend's not clever enough to come up with a prank like that. So I call my friend Rob. I'm like, hey, um, someone hit your truck last night. He's like, yeah, how the fuck did you know that? It was <laughs> me. This is this is the first night I tried just drinking and first it, night. Yeah, the first night. But but like I felt so good. I, I kind of had like that Bill Wilson, like I had arrived moment just from the yeah. way I was behaving socially with people that I was willing to overlook, like hitting my best friend's grandmother's truck. Right. Like, I think you talked about it in the book. Like you were like, oh, dude, I could do this. I could just drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 even though like I clip his truck, I don't think like here's what I thought to myself. I thought like, OK, I don't think like, all right, you could drink. Just don't drink and drive. I thought because I was texting when I when I hit the truck, it was like, all right, new rule. Just don't text when you're drinking and driving. Not don't drink and drive. Just don't text and drink and drive. <laughs> just to give you an idea of like my insanity. <laughs> so for, for, for a while, like like for like a year, though. I was able to kind of like keep it together with the just drinking. I was definitely behaving erratic and, you know, driving people nuts, but I was still getting my job done. I was still paying bills. I was, you know, paying my rent. I was on my own. I was kind of, I had some semblance of adulthood more or less. Right. But every once in a while, if I got too drunk, I would just, you know, I'd wander into the hood and I'd come back a disaster. And I had two overdoses in that time frame. And after each one, it wasn't like a wake up call. It was like, all right, we'll just just drink, just drink. But um, eventually I I meet a nice girl. (laughs) It always starts with a girl with you. Well, this is the first time that it wasn't a a, a toxic relationship. Basically, I was the toxic one because you know, usually, like I said, I'd had like some Sid and Nancy type relationships, but this was a really sweet, beautiful, good person. Right. And I'm for the most part drinking, but my behavior is bad enough that like I completely took a torpedo to the relationship. Mm. And once she leaves, I just the gloves come off. I start doing heroin for a couple of weeks. And um, but and you see how that that's that's what I mean right there. It's like that 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 ties in you know it's like for some reason you know when you 
when you get emotionally attached to somebody and you fall in love and things don't work out, if you get devastated, those are some of the most common times, at least in my experience, where I'm like more apt to be like, fuck it. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's all I was saying. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So after I take it to a Peter to the relationship, um, I go to my cousin's daughter's birthday party. She's, I think, eight or nine at the time. And I drop a bag of heroin in his driveway. But here's the kicker is that I didn't I I forfeited any plausible deniability because there was it was for some reason it was wrapped in a piece of paper that had my name on. it. So I couldn't like say like, oh, maybe some delinquent was walking by the house and dropped it. It it was mine. (laughs) So I get sober for like a week. And then one night I'm like, all right, I'm going to try and just drink. I go back to um, the restaurant that I was working at and there's like a new bartender there, his girlfriend sitting at the bar and I'm flirting with her, but like, like without flirting, like it, it, it I was trying to be cute. Like I, I was trying to um, not make it obvious, but just saying things that would provoke attraction and it was working and it was starting to piss the guy off. Yeah. So he comes around the bar, he punches me in the face and you know, that, that was, that was the last straw. At that point, I was like, OK, you, you, you can't drink safely because you, you, you're flirting with some guy's girlfriend in front of him. Like you're like a bull in a china shop, like something has to change you. Right. And I really approached sobriety completely different than I ever had before. I mean, you know, I, I tried uh, step work before and, and I just in my mind, it was like, that's just not even that's not enough. Like I started exercising. I really one one of the biggest game changers for me this time around was I always glossed over meditation. Like I tried it like a couple of times, but yeah. now it's I mean, unless life is really getting in the way, I always do at least 10 minutes in the morning. Right. And I, I really I, I always scoffed at like what the benefits might be, but I was really blown away at just how much clearer I think and how much calmer I am in situations. Mm. I mean, I'm still a psycho, but a, 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 a much better, a much more disciplined psycho. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think too, it's, it's like, uh, you know, they talk about how, you know, you need to do more research and that, you know, in the big book, uh, talk about some big book here they talk about you know how we will try many different ways to control our using or our drinking you know and and that's like kind of and i know that's so many of our stories but really you illustrate it so well um in your story because every time that you went back you you tried it from a different angle right like you know, at least initially, and you'd be like, okay, like, I just won't do that, but I, you know, so, but I can do this. And every time, so eventually you get to a point where you're at a, you know, a T in the fucking road because you're like, <laughs> you know, none of this worked, none of it. And it takes a long time, doesn't it, for us to break ourselves down to the point where we're like, I literally, I can't fucking do any of this shit, any of it, you know, cause I'm, a fucking mental case, you know? <laughs> so, 
I just think it's a tough pill to swallow at first. It dove the biggest, toughest one. Yeah. Cause I can't, I have no control, you know, I'm out of control and I have no control. I don't even trust my damn self. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, that's a shitty place to be, but it's also where we need to be. At least I needed to be, you know, I needed the gift of desperation or I never would have got clean. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, no, I I mean, I had experienced rock bottoms that would be significant enough for someone to get clean. But um, this one was more or less like um, just a deep emotional bottom. Yeah. Because by that point, I I didn't it it wasn't like I lost anything that. Of monetary value, I didn't I didn't have anything at that point When, when you're talking about trying to drink in different ways, you know, switching seats on the Titanic. I, I, I occupied <laughs> every seat. <laughs> I occupied every seat. In fact, I, I, there was a point where I was one of those violin players that was just like, you know, I'm just going to sit here and play violin like an idiot and go down with the ship. Wow. I, I'm fucking using that with my friends. Switching seats on the Titanic. <laughs> you never heard that one? No, bro. That's great. I love uh, it. That's like a, a big uh, one of the one of the cliches. I figured that was universal. No, it's, I mean, universal. Yes. in the way that I understood exactly what the fuck you meant and it resonated and I loved it. Um, but uh, not one that they use around here. I'm sure, you know, anywhere you go, that's one thing that's cool. Like if you do any traveling and, and you go hit a meeting in some strange place. And, and you walk in and they maybe you're a little nervous at first, but once people get talking, the meeting gets rolling, you just feel like you're amongst family, you know, like, and that's the beauty of the program, you know, that no matter where we go, we're never alone, not unless we choose to be. And we, you know, yeah. sometimes those sayings get like redundant and um, yeah, yeah. And you, you get annoyed with them. But when, when you do travel to other places and then suddenly like uh, you, for some reason, like, like it's comforting to hear them somewhere else. Yeah. Or, or like in this case, I'm hearing one that I never heard before, but I just like, was like, yes, that's the best. (laughs) Yeah. Either way, this fucking ship's going down. (laughs) Yeah. For sure. (laughs) Man. So you, you really, you worked at a detox. I wanted to talk about this. God, it seemed like forever. I kept thinking he must not be at the detox anymore. And then you'd be talking about detoxing. I'm like, holy fuck, he still works at that place? Like, as I'm reading the book, like, yeah. how <laughs> how long were you working at that joint when you were still uh, in and out of the program? Uh, For the first, like, year and change. I- I'm still there. You're still working at that detox. Nice. Yeah. I, well, once the book came out, I, I went to the owner. And I said, listen, I want you to hear this from me because this thing's starting to take off. Um, we've been open almost four years and I only got two and a half years clean. Wow. But yeah. I'm such a good worker that he was just like, at first he was like quiet. And I'm like, so do, do I got to look for another job? He's like, right. no. I'm like, all right, cool. I liked how in your acknowledgments at the end, by the way, that was one of my favorite parts of the book was your heartfelt acknowledgements. Um, 
but there was an acknowledgement in there for the detox. You were like, thanks for letting me do the overnight shift. Cause if I had to do shifts that required any actual work, I never would have had time to finish this book. Yeah. That was the best. I just, you're just, bro, you, you just have this uncanny honesty that is still kind of like funny and lighthearted, but you know, like you're dead serious at the same time. Yeah that I appreciate the shit out of. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons they kept me on. Cause, cause I always make the bosses laugh. Like I'll say some stuff that just you, you would think would get me fired, but, but they, they kind of find it funny. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that they have a, you know, experience with addiction of their own. And the thing about us is like, just cause we got clean, don't mean the circus left town and we're all still kind of loopy and a little crazy we probably laugh harder and and shit than we ever did in recovery but we also laugh at some of the things that normies just think is disturbing you know people give you sideways glances and be like why would you ever laugh at that but we can because we lived that shit and we <laughs> understand you know oh yeah i definitely have a jaded sense of humor uh, one thing that i thought was funny was uh the first time i overdosed before we get the heroin that I end up overdosing on because we were waiting for some girl to get out who had to connect. So me and my friend, we get some blues, to, the, the oxy thirties to, to hold us over. And the guy that he calls, it turns out like I had knew I've known him through the, the fellowship and, you know, I'm working at the detox at the time. And I kind of just have a diabolical sense of humor about it all. So like, as I'm doing the blue and I'm like, yeah, and guess what? I work at a detox and I just let out like this, this sinister laugh. And he texts my friend. He's like, bro, that ain't cool. Kids getting high works in a detox. Like, like, I don't like that shit. The, the blues dealer had a moral standing on, on this matter. Right. I mean, yeah, he's right. But, but um, what I find <laughs> funny is that, that he cared about it more than my boss did. Right. You know, I, I thought that was a funny funny story too and it, but it made me think about myself because i used to be a dealer and i i always like considered myself you know one of the good ones you know like i cared about my clients and <laughs> <laughs> fucking kind of funny because then when you fast forward to like when shit was falling apart and going crazy and i and i I was too scared to deal because if the cops caught me again, then I was going for sure, hands down for the full ride. And I had a bunch of time over my head. So I was in fear of that. So I, but I couldn't stop getting high. So then now, you know, I'm that guy that's selling all my shit off that can't keep a job. That's, you know, can't keep a fucking relationship. You know, all your, all your so-called friends vanished the second you didn't have something they wanted, you know? So they, I've been alone for months and all that shit. And I, I became a real, like self-righteous fucking selfish prick. You know, I would hold people over the coals over times that I just got them high for nothing, you know, which happened all the time because, you know, I easy come, easy go. Right. We, we like, might as well flush the shit down the toilet when we, we, we got a bunch of money in our pocket and a bunch of dope because, you know, we don't know how to, what to do with or how to be responsible with that shit. And I, so I'd always be like reminding people, you, you fucking owe me now, you know? And it's like, at the time I played it, like, it was like, no, you know, like it was just cool. And like it, 
I didn't expect anything in return, but it's funny how we can really believe that shit when we're doing it. But like in the long run, we were keeping score the whole time. We're just waiting to fucking use that as a way to get some leverage so we could get something, you know, it's crazy. Oh, absolutely. Well, when I'm flush, I'm just, I'm, I'm hitting everyone off. And then when I'm down and out, it's like, Hey, help me out. Exactly. And then you get all resentful and shit. But uh, yeah, man. So since you've been clean, let's talk. Why don't you talk about some of the some of the struggles that you faced and uh, how you've overcome them? And uh, yeah, and then maybe just you know talk about some of the good things, man. Some of the blessings, some of the accomplishments that you've made. Well, the the biggest thing. I mean, aside from repairing relationships with my entire family, it has been putting the book out because the, the most of my struggles in the first two years was centered around this book because there's all this fear like, um, is anybody going to give a shit? Is anybody going to understand what I'm going for? Am I putting all this effort into something that's not going to go anywhere? And it was just completely like... Uh, haunting my mind because it was a long process. It took me two years and I was really working myself up. Like, like, what if this doesn't work? What if this isn't, what if I'm wasting my time? What if I should be focusing more on, uh, you know, taking more commitments at AA or some shit, you know, like, like, cause, cause I really, I, I, I really, uh, was careful about my time and I kind of sacrificed a little bit if, if I didn't have all that going on, if I wasn't so focused on trying to repair my life um, in other ways, I probably would be spending a lot more time at meetings and I probably would be a lot happier at, at the time. So I, I really was sacrificing a lot of struggles, but something, something was telling me, you know, to do this. There was there was one time I, I had these fears and, and there was a guy who was drunk trying to get sober. And it, w- it was so random because he was complaining about like um, his uh, what do you call it? Diabetes medication. He's like, my brother didn't pack this. You didn't pack that. And I'm trying to say to him, like, listen, your, your brother is obviously he obviously gives a shit like, like g- give him a break. And then he just randomly says, oh, the, the most powerful thing you could do is share your story. And his name was Angel. So I. I Kind of took it as a burning bush and I just kept kept going. And the biggest pleasure of my sobriety this time around has been that I've gotten the reaction that I'm looking for with this book. I've gotten so many people that have messaged me that they devoured it in like a day or two and that they identified so much and that it inspired them. And that they left because at the end of the day, I, I, I'm not the best example of sobriety. So I was hoping at the very least I can make somebody laugh. Yeah. Well, you did that, dude. You, you, I, I laughed so damn much. <laughs> it was awesome. People would like th- hear me laugh out loud at some part and shit. And then they'd think that I was like going to show them something or, you know, how pe- you'll like get it somebody's attention and shit and i'm like oh no it's just this little <laughs> keep reading <laughs> <laughs> oh man 
Yeah. I'm glad that you did it, dude, because it's like as much as you took, so it took a long time and, you know, you, you had to battle your own fears and insecurities and worries about it. Like this is kind of like, like doing the podcast for me, you know, it's like, this is something that even though it's just for us, we, we get to have this great conversation for a little while. And then I get to walk away from my computer feeling like I'm kind of on, you know, walking on air for a bit because it's like every time, you know, you get to talk some good recovery. It's like this, just this great feeling, but this is something that's out there, you know, now, and you never know who's going to see it. And, and this, the reach of it, of the thing is really, we have no idea and we'll never really know or be able to fathom exactly, you know, how many people it's touched. And that's not what it's about, is it? You know, we don't do, this is like a great form of service work to, to write a book like that is a great form of service work because you're, you're being able to really broaden your reach. You know, it's, it's a good thing, man. Like, and I think we will never know, you know, until we, you know, if I don't know, my higher powers, God, when I'm, when I'm like up there and he opens that big book, maybe then I'll get to see the ripple effects, you know, of, of me being willing to do this shit and talk openly about it, you know, but it's like, that's not why we do it. You know, we don't do it to see that those, those little ones, you know, you say those messages that you get and stuff, like when you get those things, I think those are good. Cause they're like an encouragement, right. For us to keep pushing forward. And it, it, it lets us know that, that it is touching somebody or, you know, it's just an encouragement that, and a motivator, but we'll never know the full reach. We'll never know it. You know, not while we're sucking air. Yeah, when, when I first put it out, it was mostly just uh, friends and family. Cause I, I didn't really start pushing it right away. Right. Um, and everyone was talking about how great it is, but these are all people that, if they don't know me, they, they know people in the book. They knew um, there was like a connection. Mm-hmm. So it was like, like, you know, I, I really want to see the acid test. Like when somebody I don't know says, uh, gives me th- this high praise. The first person that did it, uh, I think he's from Oregon. This guy reached out. He had like 60 days sober and just gave me this heartfelt. He, and he's been my biggest fan ever since because all the promo ads that I put on uh, Instagram likes everyone like fucking love this guy because it, it, that was the first one where I realized like, all right, I, I got the reaction that I was that I was aiming for. Yeah. it's awesome. I'm glad, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm glad because sometimes no matter how strong we might seem, you know, like people, I think, I think there's this thing where it's like, once people start looking up to you, there's, there's this like trap that you can fall into where maybe you start, you know, you start thinking that you're like, maybe not a guru, but like, you know, you're like a fucking OG of recovery or something. And now you feel like you got this like image to uphold and then you stop reaching out for help. You're trying to keep up, you know, that appearance, but like, I, I don't see you doing that though. Cause you're so fucking honest about shit, you know, like, oh, and that's I always cool. hated the girls. Yeah. I mean, well, when it comes to the people in, in the program that have like this cult, like following, 
there's just something in me that just hates that. Right. Cause you yeah. know, they have struggles too and they, nobody knows about them. Yeah. No. Yeah. But, but you know, just in my experience, like, I don't know that they've always pissed me off. Um, my, my two mentors in sobriety, they're like heavyweights in recovery, but they don't have like this cult like following. Right. No, no, they, they want that, you know? Right. And they have every reason to, you know, speak from the mountaintop as anybody else, but they, they really don't do that. They really kind of see people at eye level. Yeah. It's like, I'm not trying to get famous in a anonymous fellowship, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of dumb, but, uh, no, it's, it's, it's just a trip to me. You know, like I knew a guy early in recovery that I really actually look like looked to this dude. I like trusted him for a little while and then fucking it turned out that he had, he, he was like, he would take in, he was predatory. He would take in and he was like middle-aged too. He would take in young girls, uh, give them a place to stay you know, who were really fresh and like he would get, he would like sell them dope and shit, but he wasn't using dope. It was fucked up when it all came out. I guess he had a tanning bed at his house and shit. It was weird. Like (laughs) tanning bed. Yeah, dude. And a horse. So, so then you you can imagine we got some pretty uh, interesting characters around here. So there was a barrage of like memes getting made that, uh, made jokes about come ride my horsey and use my tanning bed and <laughs> that makes me think of american psycho when it was say, hey, fucked you up where you get your tan salon i got a tanning bed at home you should yeah. look into it dude you <laughs> speaking of which i saw that freaking video you have <laughs> where you're like uh using that scene with the with the uh prostitute and that friend of his or whatever in his apartment <laughs> Shit. yeah I, I did three of them i did the business card scene i did uh i did the one when he kills paul allen i used my roommate for that and then i found a way to like splice the video so i just took the the, the actual footage of the, the the hookers from that scene and he's like you know he's always talking about like uh phil collins or huey lewis in the news and yeah. instead i just talk about me the same way he talks about them hell yeah I'm going to have to look into it and like scroll your shit and find those. Cause I, I enjoyed that one. It made me laugh. Um, I got a lot of funny, mostly stuff that like, I just been putting on Instagram because on Facebook, it's all like my friends and I don't really want to torture them with the like constantly talking about the book, but Instagram, I'm completely shameless. Yeah. Uh, it's uncle Sacky S A C C H I. I got all kinds of funny, like, recovery based uh humor some of it's a little like hardcore but but um like for example um i yeah i haven't noticed you ever noticed when you go to young people's meeting people dress up like they're going to a goddamn nightclub yeah <laughs> yeah so what i did was i put like a caption that says getting ready for the young people's meeting i put <laughs> stickers of like you know the cover of the book uh that it's available on amazon and barnesandnoble.com and then the video in the middle is uh Buffalo Bill in in Silence of the Lambs when he's like you know putting on the lipstick and the wig? Yeah. 
<laughs> tucking his sack back. <laughs> yeah. Nice, yeah. bro. Yeah, because what I do is I, I'll, I'll poach uh, followers from like those like fucked up um, like recovery meme pages where like, you know, they make like, you know, a lot of drug uh, humor and right um, recovery humor. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll follow them hoping that they follow me back and then I'll just, you know, do similar things to what they're doing. But with, you know, the ads and uh, one, one of them I had was uh, it says when when I shoot heroin at, at a house party and everyone's mortified and it's Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future after like he shredded on the guitar, but he's in yeah. the 50s and they're just like, like, what the hell was that? So like yeah. the whole crowd is just like mortified. I guess they, they just weren't ready like, for that. Like, yet. <laughs> I guess you guys weren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Oh, Jesus. That's messed up. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I like it, though. I'm, I'm a pretty I got a pretty sick sense of humor, too. Um, So, yeah, I'm like, what the fuck was I going to say? I forgot. Wow. Brain fart. Yep. That happens on this show. <laughs> uh, what happens when you're speaking at a medium? Yeah. Just get completely sidetracked. Yeah. Whole room's looking at you like you're an idiot. So I get squirreled all the time, you know, go down, go down little uh, rabbit holes and shit like whatever, you know, as long as I can remember what the hell I was talking about in the first place, then I feel okay about it. <laughs> or if I can magically kind of turn it into something that sounds profound, even though it was a complete squirrel fucking moment, mm. just try to make it relevant somehow. Like if I realize that I'm doing that, then I'm like, how does this have anything to do with what I'm talking about? And then I try to make it relevant. <laughs> I feel like we take for granted. We, we, we don't realize just how many circuits we fried in our brains. So true, man. I can remember a time when I didn't think I honestly thought that I did irreparable damage to my brain. And I really didn't know if I'd be able to be like a like a responsible member of society. Anyway. Oh, my God. That reminds me. I, I, I tried going back to college when I got sober and I was taking a psychology class and they were on the topic of uh, drugs and alcohol. And they're just talking about the damage that it does and even other habits to like your brain that weren't even like addiction stuff, like stuff that I'll do sober, like um, not sleeping right and, and stuff like that. And I remember like I was like cringing and squirming in my seat. It's like, oh, God, like I'm just basically hearing like <laughs> everything <laughs> that I've done wrong to myself. <laughs> right. It's crazy. But yeah, with time, like I, 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 I could feel like my brain healing. I mean, it's not a hundred percent, but right, it, it's enough to get through the day. Well, I remember, but probably about six months clean, dude. I was still, and I mean, I don't get me wrong. I still, to this day, you know, sometimes struggle on emotional level and stuff. But at the time, I just felt like my emotions were so fucking out of control still, and I was getting really discouraged. Like I was starting to get to the point where I was thinking, like, if this is what it's going to be like, I'd rather be fucking high. No, yeah. absolutely. That that's and, that's where I was. And when yeah. when when I got clean for like a year in the past, I I guess I kind of had like a pink cloud going for me or something. But this oh, yeah. time around, it wasn't like that. It, like the first year was miserable. Like yeah. I'd be in social situations, and it's like, you know, there's times where I could be timid, but for the most part, I'm a social butterfly. 
but there was times where like my mind was just like a blank. Like I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't function the way like I had in the past. And I was really getting like, like concerned. It's like, like shit. Did I like, uh, did, did I reach the point of no return? And like, is this what it's going to be? Right. Well, with time it got better. Nah, man. When I, when I had gotten um, my current sponsor, cause I went through a few in the, in the first like year and a half, you know, and like a year of that, I was relapsing and shit. So it took a while before I actually like got a sponsor that worked for me and that, and when I was serious about it, but one of the first things he did, dude, he was like, he, he gave me this book. It was called staying sober, a guide to relapse prevention. And he's like, I want you to read this. And when you get done reading that, then we can start going through the book and you know, all that and start working. And I was like, okay. And I read that book dude in like, I think it was like four days, three days. But I remember opening it upon first cracking it, thinking this book ain't going to teach me shit. I've been to 11 inpatient treatments. You know, I know all this stuff. I could teach this stuff, but the first two chapters were like that, you know, where I knew that stuff, but then it wasn't like that at all. Like I learned so much from it, but there was a part where it was talking about, post-acute withdrawals and it was talking about um like that like say for meth right like that that can take two years for your brain to uh like heal from that and that's just the actual like physically like the tissues and stuff right like that's not as you alluded to earlier you know like the the fact that it's going to be a lifelong process to like learn a better way to live and and develop like heavy thoughts beliefs and or healthy thoughts beliefs and attitudes and shit you know that's going to take forever because you know it took 20 years to do this damage it's not going to take one year to fix it type thing but man that even though it was like damn it you know to read that it was hard to read it it was also kind of comforting because then I knew that my struggle wasn't in vain and that I was supposed to still feel like I was struggling, you know, and it, somehow I got a comfort out of it. Uh, Another thing that, that I, that for some reason it was like, huh, uh, it, it was a concept that I already knew about that, that they talked about now in, in another psychology class was um, they were talking about alcoholics and psychologists because you know how we talk about uh instant gratification yeah but for some reason it's the same thing but they worded it different and i don't know for some reason or other it just resonated with me because especially at the time i was getting really impatient it's like okay why hasn't why hasn't this materialized in my life why isn't that materialized in my life i'm praying every day like like well you know where's god yeah uh they they call it reward impatience that's like what what we suffer from yeah, we we call it delayed gratification. Mm. It's the kind that sticks. It's the kind that lasts. You know, it's not. It doesn't fizzle out in a short period of time and go away. It's it sticks to you. You know. But yeah, there's actually we did an episode on that. Like sometimes we do topic episodes. It's not all interviews like this. Sometimes we talk about different topics, and we'll maybe we'll bring in a co-host to you know, another party to talk about it, or maybe it'll just be me and Charles, but we'll just dig into it. You know, we'll try to get hit it from every angle we can think of. And then we'll let uh, people from sober and serious chime in online and, 
and we'll read their comments and then we have a voicemail line too so we'll like and you'll probably get messages from me now that we know each other um where i'll be like you know hey you want to call in on this topic but by you know whatever day and we'll play it on the show and then we'll talk about or we'll respond to it when we uh do the recording but man it's cool because sometimes i learned so damn much from that shit charles does a great job with the show prep on that stuff like i i just show up bro i pray before i show up and i talk you know and i just kind of let the conversation lead me but he does a lot of like good show prep and stuff so he'll be bringing some stuff to the table where i'll be like damn fucking a it's kind of cool i love doing this dude it's it's just a blessing for my recovery to be able to talk to people like you and hear some good stuff. And I always learn so much from everyone, dude. I'm really excited to start my own podcast because um, the first few podcasts I did was from um, other authors, people that have nothing to do with recovery. And at first I was like blown away. It was like, oh, this is like a, a neat concept. Like they're helping me, but also helping themselves. That kind of sounds familiar, but right <laughs> yeah um but then i realized like uh, they're not so altruistic because some of them would ask for money up front and i was completely new to the publishing world so i didn't want to like spend money rec- recklessly right. i wanted to kind of like get the lay of the land first and one guy who just seemed like really nice and sweet and sincere he puts me on his podcast and you could tell that it, it doesn't have that many like viewers, but like, you know, I'm happy to talk to anybody about myself. I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. the center of my own universe. You just love listening to your own voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. But after like he airs it, he's like, oh, so uh, a lot of people are talking about it. They really loved you on the episode. What do you say to uh, some uh, you pay 50 bucks and then I'll uh, promote the, the shit out of it. And then I do some investigating and it, it really wasn't worth it. So he wasn't as altruistic as he seemed. Right. So I thought like, you know what? I, I, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to start my own podcast and uh, you know, I, it'll be absolutely free. Like I'm just yep. going to invite other authors, but because I'm in recovery, I'll also bring in uh, I don't, I don't want to be uh, confined to uh, either recovery or, author i want to bring in authors i want to bring in people in recovery and i also want to just bring in people that probably should be in recovery but are just completely hilarious to me yeah hell yeah so i'm definitely looking forward to that i'm just not i'm technologically illiterate (laughs) i need my father my father's down in florida visiting my brother when he comes home he's gonna straighten us out and we're gonna get started Okay. Well, you know, just putting it out there, but if you want any, um, you know, advice or, or resources or whatever, like I'd be more than happy to help you. And I'm sure Charles would too, dude, like kind of, you know, show you some things or or let you know about some things that are out there and available as far as editing software and uh, podcast platforms and things like that. Uh, Cause it's really not as difficult as you might think. And I'll just say, you know, it's free. If you want to do it for free, you can do it for free. There's anything that you need to do this. um, You can access for free. You just got to know where to look. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't have, you don't have to fucking pay big bucks for some editing software or whatever. You know what I mean? It's really not necessary. I got, I got some, uh, 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to that podcast, by the way. And please let us know what you know what it's going to be called when you're going to be doing it. Uh, oh, it's the, I know what it's going to be called. It's going to be called the Uncle Sacky Show. The Uncle Sacky Show. Mm-hmm. I like that. Because <laughs> I'm everybody's favorite uncle. <laughs> right. <on. laughs> you're younger than me, but that's not actually know a lot of people that have uh, that are uncles and they have like nieces and nephews that are older than they are. So. Yeah, well, the moniker started with my drinking crew in Jersey because, um, like I said, I worked at that restaurant. I was like, at like age 30. There was like a lot of younger guys that I was hanging around with. And, you know, it felt like I was their uncle. So and I was just thinking of like what everybody's favorite uncle seems like. And I kind of just tried to like emulate that that character because everybody's favorite uncle is like, like, look at it this way. (laughs) Christmas Day. Right. Let's say the industry standard for an uncle is to give you 50 bucks. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like they all give you 50 bucks in a Christmas card. Right. Right. But your favorite uncle. See, what he does is he gives you that 50 bucks. But as the day progresses and he gets a little juiced up, he'll be sitting next to you on the couch and just fucking pull out a wad, lick his thumb, give you a few more bucks. And he'll be like, listen, here, take this. That Don't tell your mother. OK, don't tell your mother. That's your favorite uncle. That's yeah. who I wanted to be. <laughs> That's awesome, man. But you're going to be doing that, but you'll be doing it with like gems of wisdom and good humor. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah, brother. So I got these, uh, this series of rapid fire questions I'd like to go through with you. If you're down, I'm all in. All right, brother. First one, what is the best piece of advice you ever got? Well, definitely what I discussed before is that, um, it takes years to build your life back up. Amen. Yeah, it's true. Uh, what would be a good book recommendation? Like, something that really helped you out in your recovery? I mean, the big book's too easy. Um, Dude, you'd be surprised. That's one, probably the most common answer. Yeah. You know? but that's And the, the Bible and the Bible too. Well, yeah, but I, I want to try and think of something outside of that. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, here's something that um, it helped with my writing process. But I think it's also a good design for living, so to speak, on just how to like approach life. Uh, it helped me with the book. It's called The War of Art. And I forget the author's name. I think it's Stephen something, but um, it was really good. And it's a quick read. And, and for some reason, it just helped me with the creative process. But also it just it, it made me realize things that I was getting fixated on, like with my intention, that weren't really serving me. It's really good. And I, I think it could also be beneficial to someone that's in sobriety. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I think, too, that like those are inextricably connected, like your a person's creativity because um, it gets stifled. Right. And like when we get clean, it'll awaken, but we still need to like cultivate it. Right. And so things like, you know, there's also that uh, kind of sounds similar. What the hell is the name of that book? Oh shit. The artist's way is a kind of similar deal where they, they teach you how to like cultivate your creativity because it's like a muscle, you know, it's like anything else. We got to like practice and we got to work at it, you know, for sure. 
Next question. What's the hardest thing that you have had to do in your recovery? Make amends to my cousin. The one who dropped the sack at his house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it ended up not being as, um, as horrible as like I made it out in my mind. It was just like, I was just too riddled with uh, guilt and shame that I just like put it off for much longer than I should have. It's understandable, man. <laughs> it, 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 I, I remember, you know, after I first time I ran through my steps, um, I was like, when I finally started to get a little bit of the relief that comes from that work, um, which doesn't come right away, but you know, once, once I started to get some of the relief, I thought, God, if I would have known it was going to be this easy, I would have done this fucking years and years ago, you know, but you know, we do, we make mountains out of molehills and we, we think that some odds or situations are just insurmountable, you know, <laughs> and they're not, you know, really, uh, Granted, not everybody's going to be like, yeah, I forgive you. But even just putting forth the effort and showing up and like making that effort to make it right, um, that gives you a certain amount of freedom, you know, from it. It it helps you move on. It heals your heart. You know, you're not hanging on to it and letting it eat you up. You you get to take solace in knowing that you, you did all that you could. Right. Like just because they don't receive it well doesn't mean that you didn't clean your side of the street, you know. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I think I still got a couple of those kind of, you know, because I mean, I don't think people's amends lists ever get completely like checked off. You know, it's not like we we work these steps and then we go hit the street and, you know, just go fucking make all the amends like boom, boom, boom. You know, some it's like, you know, the ones that you're willing to do now, the ones that you you're willing to do later and then the ones that you you're like, I'll never do that. <laughs> you know, you got to just go through all that shit and figure mm. out, put them in the categories and they'll come when they come, you know, sometimes ones that you put in the never category will, you'll run into that person somewhere. And that, you know, it's almost like God's just dropping that opportunity right in your lap. And now you, you have no choice. And you know, the, this training that, you know, from working the steps kicks in and tells us, to, you know, you feel compelled, you feel that you have to say something, you know, or make that amend because they're in front of you. So it's like, never say never, you know, you never know if you stay, if you're open, if you're open-minded about whatever might come in your path, you'd be able to make some amends or do some things in your life that you never thought you could do and shit. Mm. I try not to listen to my head anymore. You know, I treat my head like a bad neighborhood, dude. I try not to go there alone (laughs) because it's stupid. You know what I mean? All right. Next question. What's the most rewarding thing that you've done in your recovery? Publishing the book for sure. Yeah. It's quite the accomplishment, man. Uh, What's a song that symbolizes your recovery? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Drive Incubus. Dude. You know what? I got to say, we got some similar like thought processes I've noticed through this interview that I just love. Just like it's good shit. But yeah, that's a great song, man. I used to share it all the time. Like my first two years of recovery, that was like my recovery song. 
That's <laughs> a good pick. <laughs> you get and the Jason stamp of approval. Just before getting sober, like I heard it, and it was the first time I heard it in a couple of years. And well, like when it when it came out and I was younger, I wasn't really feeling that song so much. It was like, oh, all right, that's a nice tune. But then like, you know, more life experience and just identifying with the with the words a little bit more. Yeah. I, I remember it started like getting the gears grinding in my head, like, you know, maybe I, I should go get sober again. Yeah. I just love it. The, it's got profound lyrics, but yeah, like it's just like those cliches you were talking about earlier, you know, like how those things can get annoying. Dude, in early recovery, I fucking thought every one of those things on the wall at the AA club were so retarded. I hated everything about them, but I didn't have any personal you know, they didn't have any personal significance to me because I didn't have any life experience to relate to it with. But when I worked the steps, all of a sudden those things came to life. You know, those cliches made sense. And then I would almost get teary eyed when I'd hear some of them because they would, you know, invoke the memory and the and, and just that real kind of pride of like the amount of work that I put in to like kind of overcome that. Dude, it's crazy how that works. So it's just like when you read a book, right? And like different things will pop out to you at different times of your life. If you reread something a lot and it's like, just it depends where you're at, I guess. There's certain things stand out or make more sense as you live. Like you said, more life experience. All right. So that's fucking, that's a good song, dude. Good pick. Recovery resources that you would recommend. Mm. Well, I mean, obviously the fellowship, anyone whichever a saves your a um <laughs> i uh never heard that one either <laughs> yeah um i'm weary of um even though i work in the field like I, I know that we're legitimate um i'm weary of uh most treatment centers and 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 all that um because the way i got sober I've been in and out of rehabs, but the way I got sober this time and the time that I had a year and a half, I just kicked cold turkey and I just went to meetings. Mm. And that, that, that I think that's the best way to do it. I mean, obviously, some people, uh, if they're physically addicted to alcohol or um, uh, benzos, uh, that could be a violent um, withdrawal. And they obviously should be medically detoxed. But I think the ideal scenario is just go to meetings. Oh yeah. Cause and I think it's the most powerful thing too, you know, anyway, but also to your point, it's, you know, the intentions are pure, right? There's no, well, maybe not totally pure. Cause there's obviously a lot of sick people in the program. So you might have to deal with some characters, but uh, yeah, it's not anybody trying to gloss you over so they can get you to be a return customer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what, so we think daily routines are really important on the show. Um, you know, so what, what's some things you do on the daily for your routine that, uh, help you in your recovery? I, I, I'm a big fan of the movie American Psycho and I wanted to emulate it as, as crazy as it may sound like I wanted to emulate his morning routine. You know, <laughs> yeah. how, like yeah, I mean, like not with like all like those uh, moisturizers and all that, but <laughs> but when I when I got sober, it's like okay, I'm gonna be like next level. I'm gonna start my day. I'm gonna have a good breakfast. 
I'm going to pray and meditate. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to have a protein shake. I'm going to eat another decent meal and I'm going to go to a meeting. And, and since, since I got sober, at least four out of five of those things happen. Like, like, uh, uh, there's times when like work gets in the way, like, uh, on Tuesdays, I come off an overnight and go right back in. So like, I, I can't like really like hit everything, but like, I try to like hit that routine as often as I possibly can. For sure. No, it's a good routine. I mean, people might be like put off by the fact that you introduced the telling of it by saying American Psycho, but if they've seen the movie, they know that dude just really like disciplined with his uh, with his self care and shit. But yeah, I mean, as far as the the things you laid out, dude, that's. That's amazing. I think I just shaved, dude. I just shaved for the first time in forever yesterday. My fucking beard was getting so long and I was just like a bushy mess. And I, I went to town, I shaved it. I actually busted out the razors, you know, blew the dust off them. And, and then I went and got a haircut and I feel like my head's like 10 pounds lighter, but there's something that feels good about that. You know, like just to take care, you know, to take care of yourself is a good thing. Um, I think it's, it builds your self-worth in a way too. Yeah. The, the winter kind of slows it down because the seasonal depression kicks in. Oh, I don't care how spiritually centered you are cold winter. You're miserable. You're cranky. You're grouchy. So there'll be like days where it's like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But mm-hmm. the sun's coming out. The weather's getting a little bit nicer. So no excuses. Amen, brother. Well, I really appreciate your time today and thanks for writing the book. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And it's thanks been, for having me on. Yeah. And it's been great to get to know you a little bit and make your acquaintance as well. So, so we'll sign out everybody out there, take a good, uh, hard look at yourselves and your routine and, and maybe some of the stuff we talked about today can help you on your journey. Uh, till then have a good week, everybody. And we'll talk to you later. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes. Castbox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.